All right, it's time for us to get started tonight. We are glad that you're here. It's hot outside, isn't it, today? But it's nice in here. We're glad all of you have uh, come tonight and chosen to be a part of our assembly to study God's Word. If you're visiting with us, and we do have several as our guests, thank you for coming. Of course, our summer series has been outstanding, and uh, tonight, of course, is no exception. Uh, Eric gave me four pages of introductory material to introduce him tonight, but I'm going to narrow it down just a little bit. And, you know, I do a lot of markdowns. So I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but uh, I located some information about Eric in case some of you uh, have never heard him before. Of course, most of us from this area know of Eric and the good work at Apologetics Press. I will mention that he's a graduate of Fried Hardeman University. He has received his Bachelor of Science in Bible and History and also his Master of Ministry and uh, 17 years, right, at Apologetics Press. I think you started there by the time I started here. And uh, he's doing a great work there. He's a member of the Bible Department. Of course, his wife, Jenna, are they here tonight, your family? Just which one? The ugly one, he says. So if you want to raise your hand, I won't call you out on that one. But anyhow, his wife, Jenna... And he have three children, Bo, Micah, and Shelby. I'm so, so I'm sure it's not Shelby because you wouldn't. Yeah, that's exactly right. And of course, they live in worship in Wetumpka. And uh, Eric is an associate minister there. Uh, Eric does an excellent job uh, writing for Apologetics Press. I, I love to read his material. It's very scholarly, and yet somebody simple-minded like me can understand it. And so I appreciate that very, very much. Uh, he has written a number of books. For example, The Anvil Rings, Answers to Alleged Bible Discrepancies, Volumes 1 and 2. Of course, a very popular volume, Behold the Lamb of God, Truth Be Told, and Wonders of Creation. And, of course, he is the author of, or uh, the assistant editor of the Discovery Magazine, the uh, one for children that's published by Apologetics Press. And, of course, Eric frequently... Uh, speaks at lectureships and youth events and gospel meetings. He's very busy on the road in seminars and things of that nature. And so we are truly honored to have him uh, with us tonight, and we're going to turn it over to him at this time for the remaining part of our, of our service. Okay, so just so everyone knows, I did not send him that to read, all right? I don't know what's happened to Doug Giff, but I mean, he's, he started lifting weights or something because as I was thinking about my noodle arms and I see how, you know, you know, big and muscular his arms are, I'm thinking, has Philip rubbed off on him or something? Because this guy looks like he's been lifting, you know, lifting some weights, pumping some iron. It is always a, a blessing to be here at Delreda. I love very much the relationship that Apologetics Press has with, with this congregation uh, appreciate your kind support of the work that we uh, have been involved in for a number of years. You know, next year, I believe, we will be celebrating our 40th anniversary, and this church has been with us for many, many of those, of those years. Also, uh, greatly appreciate the uh, relationship, the friendship, the fellowship that Wetumpka has with Delreda and Delreda with Wetumpka. I kid the young people sometimes, I guess, at Delreda and Wetumpka. I feel like sometimes it's kind of all one big youth group. Uh, maybe I'm naive when I say that, guys, but anyway, that's the kind of relationship I feel like we have, and isn't that the way it's supposed to be? So really love that very much. Most of you may know that we just got back from, uh, well, a couple of weeks ago from several days of church camp. We had 260 people or so 
at the Apologetics Press Week at Indian Creek Youth Camp and several of those. In fact, I think Del Reyes sent uh, more than everyone except one congregation. And uh, we had people from over 50 different congregations, about four or five denominations were represented there from seven different states uh, and also Vancouver, Canada. So we had folks from a lot of different places and Del Reyes is a huge part of that week and we appreciate those, especially Will who comes brings the big group and other adults and love having the kids. Uh, and believe it or not, the Delray kids are so well behaved. I mean, the teens here are angels. Did y'all know that? I mean, do y'all really believe that? I mean, that's, that's uh, been my experience anyway. Uh, I, love, uh, I love young people. I loved being a young person all those many years ago. I love having friends. I love uh, the neighborhood that I grew up in. I was blessed, you know, middle income, maybe even lower middle, middle income family. I mean, I had, I had this kid named Sparky. Have y'all ever had a friend named Sparky? I mean, that, what a cool name. Sparky lived down the street, had a friend named Andy, had a friend named Trent and Jason. And, you know, just guys grew up with. It's, it's fun to have friends. It's, it's a blessing to have friends. You ever thought about Jesus and the friends that he had grew, growing up? I mean, here he was. He was a real person. He grew, the Bible tells us, in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And he grew up. I don't know what, maybe they had a name for the street. I'm not sure what the customs were of that day as far as naming the streets that they were living on and things. But Jesus grew up as a boy in Nazareth. They would have known him as, known of him as Yeshu or Yeshua. Imagine being his neighbor, asking your mom, Hey, can I go play with Yeshua? Can I go hang out with him and his neat family? Can I go learn a little bit of carpentry from his dad or maybe from, from Jesus and the things that he had learned? I want to go hear them tell some Bible stories. I mean, he was a real person, grew up in a real town. And people would have known him and his family, his mom, his dad, his brothers, his sisters. Yeshua. Imagine knowing him. I mean... You have some childhood friends, or you had some. Think of some of their names. Imagine after about 30 years, maybe you've been living in this town for 30 years, and you hear that your buddy's gone away for a little while. And then maybe you hear that he was baptized by, by John the Immerser, John the Baptizer, the Baptist. And then he was gone for several weeks after that, and then he returns and you're, so, you're pumped, like, man, I hadn't seen Yeshua in a while. And so you meet up with him and a number of other people on the Sabbath day. And you see Yeshua, your, your buddy, your friend, lifelong friend. You see him there in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he's given the scroll of Isaiah. And he takes the scroll and he begins to read the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me, Jesus said, to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he rolled the scroll back up, we would assume. Most likely gave it back to the attendant. 
And he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine 2,000 years ago having never thought of Jesus as the long-awaited, promised, prophesied, expected Messiah. And you hear him say, in essence, I am. And what kind of stir did that make? What kind of commotion? Well, as you continue to read there in Luke chapter 4, you read that after Jesus said a few other things that hurt some of their feelings. You, you know, we live in a day and time when people don't really want to ever have their feelings hurt. In fact, I was just hearing a couple of Christians talking today and, and at lunch we were talking and one of them said that this, this guy, uh, you know, he, he, he loves the church, but sometimes the church just seems to hurt his feelings. And of course, it's never right to be to be mean and unkind, but you know what hurts people's feelings a whole lot is just is just truth. Well, Jesus spoke the truth 2000 years ago. He was the truth. He embodied truth. Everything about him was true. And they were ready to throw him out. They were ready to throw him off of the cliff. They were ready to kill him. I mean, the reaction to Jesus 2,000 years ago was, well, some thought he was a good teacher, a good preacher, a good prophet. Some thought he was a crazy man, that he was a false prophet, that he was delusional, that he was demon-possessed. There were a lot of different reactions to who Jesus was 2,000 years ago. And brothers and sisters... There are a lot of different reactions to who Jesus is today. To who Jesus is among people who are living today. You know, there are about, statisticians tell us, uh, about one billion people in the world who claim no religion whatsoever. Who are atheists, agnostics, skeptics. About 1.5 billion Muslims in the world, we're told. There are a lot of people who claim to be Hindus or Buddhists. I mean, hundreds of millions of people who do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. You know what? The three huge barriers between us and our unbelieving friends, our atheist, agnostic, skeptical friends, are the fact that there is a God, the Bible is His Word, and Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. You know, if we think about the nature of Jesus, that is the chief issue and conflict between Christianity and Islam. You know, sometimes it's, it's, uh, we're tempted to reason about things, to talk about things that really are extremely peripheral. Sometimes I'll have individuals call up or write at Apologetics Press and um, they appear to be atheistic in their mindset and they'll want to argue something that's somewhat peripheral, like, you know, did dinosaurs really live or did dinosaurs and humans ever live together? And, and you know, we can talk about that stuff. There's nothing wrong to ask the question, to answer the question, to look at the evidence. But sometimes I, my experience has been people want to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about peripheral matters when, you know, sometimes we just need to step back and say, wait a minute, do you, do you even believe that there is a creator? Do you believe that there is a God? Oh no, no I don't. Well then why are we talking about this over here? You know the, the chief, the, the major issue, conflict between Islam and Christianity is 
The nature of Jesus. The Quran says the Messiah, the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle. No more than an apostle. Surah 23.91 says, Never has God begotten a son. The nature of Jesus is the chief issue in the conflict between true Christianity, biblical Christianity, and what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, that Jesus Christ is not God. It is unscriptural, said some of their literature from the 1960s as well as 2004, for worshipers of the living and true God to render worship to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus allegedly is not God and never claimed to be. I just had some very friendly, very nice Jehovah's Witnesses so-called knock on my door uh, probably a couple of weeks ago. And they wanted to talk about end times. They wanted to talk about, you know, what's going to happen, you know, when this life is over. And you can have that discussion with them. But you know what really what is the, if you want to get to the heart of the matter, one of the chief areas, differences between what I believe and what they believe is what the Bible teaches about the nature of Jesus. They do not believe their literature that comes, if you will, from their headquarters indicates says, teaches, advocates that Jesus Christ is not God. I believe this is one of the second or third most popular books of, the la- of this century. After uh, the Harry Potter series and maybe one or two other books or series. The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown back in the early 2000s. He wrote a book, it was a, you know, a novel, it's a fictional book, but supposedly based on all sorts of real factual information. Just read the bottom of page one and you'll see that he says that you know, all of this, these different things in this novel, they are historical, they're supposedly true. And one of the made-up characters in the book, in discussing Jesus, said this. He said, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet. A great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. A mortal, Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea. By officially endorsing Jesus as the Son of God, Constantine turned Jesus into a deity who existed beyond the scope of the human world, an entity whose power was unchangeable. Constantine, the Roman emperor of AD 325, upgraded Jesus' status almost four centuries. That's a an error in the book, by the way. That should be three centuries after Jesus' death. Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible which omitted those Gospels that spoke of Christ's human traits and embellished those Gospels that made Him God-like. And believe it or not, there have been a lot of people who have read things, heard things like this. They've been either one, either they've been bothered by them or they have, as a young man I was talking to in Texas a few years ago, they just seem to embrace this as if it was Gospel. As if it was true. I was talking to a friend out in Texas a few years ago, and he was basically talking about how Jesus isn't, he didn't tell me he had read this book, but he said, you know, Jesus really isn't who Christians in the Bible say that he is, and he began to say this and that. And I had read this book, I guess a few months earlier, and I said, Mark, I said, you read the Da Vinci Code, didn't you? He said, yeah, how'd you know? I said, well, you're saying the same kind of things that Sir Lee Teabing, the made-up character in the book, said. And guess what? He's very, very wrong. But you know, have you ever experienced this as a Christian when you know, you know what the truth is and you've obeyed the truth and, and you're, you're continuing to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and then we come across some argument or we come across something that we read or we hear. Have you ever had that, maybe that feeling where maybe your stomach kind of comes up into your throat or you're just like almost scared for just a moment? Like, hey, I've never heard of this. Is this what the truth is? 
I have no doubt there there are probably a lot of people who wear the name of Christ who read this book or heard things like this. You can go to YouTube and read and hear all sorts of stuff like this. It's not based on facts, but that can sound right and sound somewhat convincing on the surface. Is Jesus, was Jesus, is Jesus Almighty God? I would like to commend this congregation, your elders, those who organized this summer series, because this is the heart of the matter. This is the heart of who we are, what we believe, what we do. You know, it is quite appropriate to be able to talk and to talk about any biblical matter, to discuss things with friends, with neighbors, with enemies. But being able to talk about who Jesus is, which I understand is the theme for your entire summer series, nothing more important than this, especially considering the day and times in which we live where one out of every five Americans claims no religion whatsoever, where 46% of Americans aren't reading their Bibles, where about 60% of millennials aren't reading their Bibles. Do you think we need to be able to talk as much as anything and more about who Jesus is than anything else? Well, who is Jesus? Well, in the next few minutes that we have together, that was just the introduction. So we've got to, we've got to get through four, really four, they're kind of four and a half points because the fifth point is a supplemental point that is not based upon inspired writings, okay? So I told, this is kind of like a four-point lesson if we get to all of them. And the fifth one is, hey, if we get to it, great. If not, that's okay. All right, so first of all, realize, before we even get to the New Testament, the Old Testament spoke of, prophesied of the deity of Christ. You see, again, the, sometimes the, the arguments are made. People contend that, well, you know, really, Jesus wasn't God. Those people who wanted him to be God, they just made up the story of him being God centuries after his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension up into heaven. But wait, just take a step back for just a moment. Wait a minute. What did the Old Testament have to say about the nature of of Jesus. You know, if you get an opportunity, get the audio recordings that my friend Wayne Jackson has done on Christ in Isaiah, Christ in the Psalms, Christ in Zechariah. Those are three of my favorite lessons that I've heard him uh, give. You can get those from Apologetics Press. He does a masterful job going through just breaking down some passages, a couple that I'd like to sh- share with you this evening that you are surely aware of. Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 9. What a hope that he was expounding upon that we have in the one, Genesis 3.15, who would be born of woman, who would be of such a nature, such quality, such character, that he could crush the head of Satan. And Isaiah says this one who would be born, referred to him as a son, as a child, As a ruler, that is, the government would be upon his shoulder. You know, Jesus, when he came to earth, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And what would he be called? What would be some of the titles, if you will, that would describe his nature, his character, his work? Well, he would be called, his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, mighty God. This one who would be born, that two chapters earlier, we were told would be born of a 
of a virgin whose name would be Emmanuel, which Matthew records for us means God with us. This one is, has been, has always been, will continue to be, even when he put on flesh, would be God. Now again, why are we talking about this? Because so many people claim that Jesus is not Almighty God. But notice, before we ever look into Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and the rest of the New Testament, we have Old Testament passages, authoritative scripture that tells us, wait a minute, this son, this child who would be born, the ruler that he would be, his name would be called not just wonderful, probably thinking or describing characteristic of the wonderful acts or describing in a way, in one word, the wonderful things that he would do. Counselor, the amazing teachings that he taught, the things that he said, the counsel, the spiritual teachings that he gave like no one had ever given. Not only would it be wonderful, counselor, father of eternity. He was, he's not the father, the father, the son, the Holy Spirit. Three persons. He's not the father, but he is from everlasting to everlasting. He is Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, who would be born in Bethlehem, who was, at the end of that verse, it says, from everlasting. He's the father of eternity. He is prince of peace. But he is also mighty God. And that's what the Old Testament has told us. Isaiah also Mention another one who would come and prepare the way for the Lord. And as we go through the New Testament, this is a prophecy given basically in two different places, Malachi 3 and Isaiah chapter 40, we find that it was John the Immerser, John the Baptizer, who was the one who came to prepare the way for the Lord. Well, as you look in, for example, John chapter 1, you're going to find exactly, now I know you know this, but I want you to see you can actually show through the scriptures, you can pinpoint exactly who it was that John was preparing the way for. John chapter 1 verse 15, John the baptizer, he was preparing the way for someone. Verse 27 it is he who's coming after me, who's preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. There's someone I'm preparing the way for. And then he sees Jesus, which he proclaimed, whom he proclaimed as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And this is the one. In fact, he said in verse 30, This is he of whom I said, After me a man, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now you say, Eric, I've, I've known that. I've, I've known that my entire life. But notice, I mean, just for those who may not know it, you can connect the dots from Isaiah 43 to Malachi 3 and verse 1 to Mark chapter 1 to John chapter 1. Three times here in John chapter 1, John the Baptist talks about how he was coming to prepare the way for the one who is preferred before me. The one who's preferred, not me. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm just a prophet. I'm not, I'm not deity. What do you mean? Was he really preparing the way for deity? Well, you know, when you go back to Isaiah 40 and verse 3, what you find is he was indeed preparing the way for the Lord. He was preparing the way for our God. So what did the Old Testament say about Jesus? That he was mighty God, everlasting Father? That he was the one 
that he was one who would have his way prepared for, to some extent, by a man named John the Immerser, whom the Bible says was preparing the way for Yahweh. Preparing the way for Elohim. Preparing the way for Jehovah. Preparing the way for Almighty God. You know what the Old Testament said about Jesus, that he was Almighty God. And by the way, there's some extra biblical, some non-inspired writings from the second century or early, early third century of Irenaeus who, it was, you know, it's interesting. When I read this, again, uninspired quotation, it's as if the Da Vinci Code was written 1,800 years ago and he was just responding to it. I want you to see what, what Irenaeus, one of the patristic writers, early so-called church fathers said around A.D. 200. He said, this is Christ, the Son of the living God. Now the Scriptures would not have testified these things of Him if like others He had been a mere man, but, but that He had beyond all others in Himself that preeminent birth, which is from the Most High Father. Isaiah 7.14. Matthew 1, 23. And also experience that preeminent generation which is from the virgin. The divine scriptures do in both respects testify of him. That he is the holy Lord, the wonderful, the counselor, and the mighty God. Coming on the clouds of the judge of all men. All these things did the scriptures prophesy of him. Again, this is not authoritative other than the fact that he does quote from Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 refers also to Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Is Jesus really Almighty God? Yes, He is. First of all, the Old Testament prophesied of His deity. Secondly, Jesus and others repeatedly referred to the divine nature of Jesus while He was on earth. You know, again, just to show you um, how relevant this is. Again, we've talked about how the unbelieving world in which we live, I realize that Most everyone here tonight believes that Jesus Christ is God, is deity, is from everlasting to everlasting. I was in a church in Corpus Christi, Texas several years ago, and after teaching a lesson about Jesus, I had a man that I understood to be a brother in Christ. At least he uh, seemed to be familiar with everyone there in that congregation, came up to me and said, do you really believe that Jesus Christ is God? Is deity, is divine? Well, yes, I do. And there's a number of reasons why. Jesus said, when you think about, again, what the Old Testament said Jesus would be, Jesus said in answering the high priest, are you the Christ? Who is the Christ? Well, the one upon, the one who would be born of woman, the one who would have uh, the government upon his shoulders, the ruler, the mighty God. He's the, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. In John chapter 4, when he was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, I love this, the woman says in chapter 4 verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And Jesus said, I, who speak to you, am. I am the Messiah. And by claiming to be the one the Old Testament prophesied about, he was claiming to be God. How many people do you know? How many of you have ever introduced yourself to someone else and said, hey, my name is Blaine, and they say, Blaine, where did you come from? What would you think of Blaine if he said, well, you know, I I came down from heaven. 
When I, I doubt you've ever... No, I mean, normal people don't say that. Delusional people might. But normal people don't say that. Godly people don't say that. Jesus revealed himself as not only the prophesied Messiah, but the one who came down from heaven. He revealed himself to his enemies as having seen Abraham's day. And of course, that whole account there in John chapter 8 where the enemies just keep going back and forth and back and forth with, with Jesus. And repeatedly Jesus responded in amazing, truthful manners. Oftentimes his response to questions and accusations was so different than ours would be. Not that we would necessarily be wrong, but we wouldn't be near as... The answers wouldn't be near as appropriate and near as deep as the ones that he gave. How have you seen Abraham's day? You're not even 50 years old. Before Abraham was, I am. You know, if you look at the New World Translation that is translated, that is published by the Bible and Watchtower Society of the Jehovah's Witnesses, in that verse, they do not translate, ego I me, I am, it is, before Abraham was, I, I was. Or I have been. Well, Jesus was, he's been, he is, and he always will be. He is the I am. How many righteous individuals would say what Jesus said in John chapter 5 unless there was something different about him? Unless he was more than a man, more than an angel? When he says that we are to, those in the first century were to honor him just as we honor the Father. You know, when Jesus was talking to his enemies in John chapter 10, and he said, I and my Father, after talking about the miracles, the wonders that he did, they testify of who he is, what he has done. And he says, I and my Father are one. What was the reaction of those around him? Well, that doesn't really mean anything, right? No, those who heard him on this occasion, as on other occasions hearing him, knew that Jesus was saying something very deliberate about who he was and his nature. For they took, when he said, I and my Father are one, in a special, unique sense, they took up stones to stone him because they said, you being a man, make yourself God. When Jesus claimed that the kingdom that he would establish, that the church that would be built would be his, that it would be his church, that he was the head of it, that he was the owner of it, that he was the purchaser of it. When he called it his, he was saying, I believe there is an implication there, something that we can infer from the text about his very nature because that church is also known as God's church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. It is the church of God. We are the church of God. If we have heard the good news of Jesus Christ and responded by faith to it, obediently to it, like they did in Acts chapter 2, then we are part of God's church. Well, whose church is it? It's God's church and it's Jesus' church. How could it be both? Because Jesus is God. What did the apostles, the New Testament apostles and prophets have to say about Jesus? Well, they said that... Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He wasn't a God. He is God. I can't see that clock in the back, so I'm just going to pull this up here. Time has gotten away from me. What did you say, Doug? Stop at 7.30? Is that right? 10 after? Okay, let's move on. 
What was it John the baptizer said? Well, we already discussed this. He was... He's the only one who could take away the sin of the world. No average Joe could do that. No man could do that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God except God who became man, put on flesh, lived a perfect life. That's Jesus. Andrew told his brother Peter, we have found the Messiah. Who is the Messiah? Well, he's he's mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, wonderful, counselor. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The disciples confessed to Jesus the night before, the night of his betrayal, the night before he was crucified, that you know all things. Now, you, you could sit there and say, well, you know, they, he, they, they were just using hyperbole there. They knew he didn't really. No, he knew all things. He is omniscient. And when Thomas responded to seeing Jesus, and confess that he was my Lord, that he is my Lord and my God. Was Jesus' response to that confession, well, hey, wait, wait, wait just a minute, Thomas. Was his response like Peter's was to Cornelius? Or as Paul and Barnabas' were there in Acts chapter 13, uh, to those who would fall down and worship them, or 14? And wait, wait, don't do this. Or the angel in... Revelation chapter 22, to whom John was about to bow down and, and pay some kind of special reverence to. No, no, I'm an angel. I'm not deity. Jesus' response is deafening, if you will, because there was no problem with one worshiping Jesus. After Saul, who later his name was changed to Paul, became a Christian, he went out after he was converted and began teaching that Jesus is the Christ, the eternally blessed God. Is Jesus really Almighty God? Well, the Old Testament prophesied of his deity. Jesus and others repeatedly referred to his divine nature while he was on earth. Jesus accepted worship, right? Well, God alone is worthy of worship. Matthew chapter 4, when Satan tempted Jesus to fall down and worship him, we shall worship the Lord our God and him only shall we serve. But wait a minute, Jesus accepted worship, and yet Jesus never sinned. He never sinned, but he accepted worship. What does that say about who Jesus is? And you know what some say, though, is, well, wait a minute, Jesus never really accepted worship. He just accepted obeisance. He just accepted some kind of respect that people gave. Really? You mean in, um, in John chapter 9, after a man who had been born blind and been living that way for decades, Jesus healed a man of his blindness, and then later, after the matter had been investigated very seriously, Jesus revealed to him who he was, and he fell down and worshipped him, or he just paid respect to him. Wait a minute. What about in Matthew chapter 14? By the way, you know in John chapter 9 there, when Jesus is receiving worship, My understanding is this is the only time in the Gospel of John where the Greek word for worship, proskuneo, is translated in a translation that is not very accurate and not very Jesus-friendly, if you will, the New World Translation. They translate this something besides worship because they just can't have Jesus being worshipped. Wait a minute, everywhere else this is translated worship when that worship is given to God, but not when it's given to Jesus? No, an accurate translation would say, he received worship. After Jesus fed 5,000 people, Matthew chapter 14, with five loaves and two fish, took up 12 baskets of fragments. And then later, 
when there was a, some rocky waves hitting against the, the boat of the disciples, Jesus came to them walking on water. And you recall that Peter wanted to walk on the water. He jumped out of the boat, began walking, then began to sink. Jesus helped him back to the boat. Jesus walked all the way to the boat. After working various wonderful miracles, the disciples bowed down to rightly, correctly, reasonably, logically, wonderfully worshipped Jesus because he's more than a mere man. He's worthy of our respect. He's worthy of our devotion. And he is absolutely worthy of our worship. And by the way, you know what the disciples did, do you not? After Jesus rose from the dead, they worshiped him. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary worshiped him, Matthew chapter 28. The apostles worshiped him when they saw the risen Savior. When he ascended up into heaven, Luke chapter 24, they worshiped him. It is quite appropriate for us to sing praises to King Jesus. To sing to him to worship Him as God because He is God. By the way, I know we're about out of time. But here are the, these accusations. Well, wait a minute, Eric. You know, the, the early Christians there in the, the first century or two, you know, they just kind of embellished some things, or n- not them, Constantine supposedly, and those that he commissioned. And, and you know, this... By the way, even if there was this... this uh, meeting of the minds in AD 325, this council. And even if they did vote on something, even, even if they did debate the, the nature of Jesus, that didn't settle for all times whether Jesus was the Son of God any more than if we decided right here at Delray tonight, listen, we're going to take a vote on who Jesus is. And then a hundred years from now, people said, now listen, the Christians made Jesus God back in 2018 in Montgomery, Alabama, Delray. You see, just because they may have done something in A.D. 325, in the days of Constantine, doesn't mean that that has any bearing on who Jesus is. But, you know, the writer of this particular book got it all wrong because the facts indicate that the manuscripts, that the, the statements in Holy Writ about the divinity of Jesus were stated, written, were written down for, read, believed became foundational for the belief and work of the church that Jesus Christ is God. You know, here's a book that we have at Apologetics Press where all of the manuscripts contained in it are dated from the early 2nd century to the beginning of the 4th century. Before Constantine's meeting there in A.D. 325, okay? For example, copies of John 1.1 that go back to the late 2nd century and early 3rd centuries... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's been around long before Jesus was ever allegedly voted upon as being God or not. Jesus claimed that I and my Father are one, and those who reacted to that, well, all of that predates Constantine by more than a century. So say the manuscripts that go back before that time. I know this is maybe a little heavier than we might like to see, but I want you to see that there is actual, rational, believable, right thinking based upon evidence that is there including the fact that a copy of Paul's letter to the church of Philippi, in which he affirms that Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, existed long before Constantine's supposed embellishment and nature of Jesus. And then this four and a half or fifth point that is, I'm just letting you know, is not as authoritative as these others that are based upon Holy Writ, the Old Testament, the New Testament. 
We also have non-inspired writings from early Christians, all of which predate Constantine by well over a century, that reveal that the early church viewed Jesus as divine. Why is it that Ignatius and Polycarp and Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, why is it that they referred to or believed that Jesus was God, the Son of God, the everlasting high priest, the first begotten word of God, even God? Why did they believe that? I would contend because that's what the early church believed. Because that's what the Scriptures taught, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. May God help us to not just believe that Jesus Christ is Almighty God, but that we would allow that to affect our lives based upon the fact that, hey, it is absolutely true because that is what the true evidence indicates. Thank you very much for your kind attention.